continue our study, our series through John that you may believe, and I want to do so by turning to really to, we've been looking mainly at what, what is called discourse, just John writing facts about who Jesus is, and now it turns into a narrative including some discourse, some, some historical dates, times, places, events, but also more than that, it is conversations that take place and the results of those conversations. Here in John chapter 1, I want to read in your hearing verses 35 through 42. Again, the next day, notice how John is rendering time. First day, this delegation came from Jerusalem to interrogate John the Baptist. Who are you? What gives you authority to do this? The next day, John is preaching, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now, verse 35, the next day, following those events, again, a historical record, an accurate, reliable accounting of what took place. Again, the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, this is the second time. John has made this proclamation. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, son of Barjona, Simon Barjona, Simon the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. I speak this morning on the first followers, the very first followers of of Jesus. And what we need to understand is that what we have just read occurs within the first few weeks. I, I want to say few months, but I don't want you to spread that out too far. Within really just the first few months of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, though it is not detail for us here when we look at the other gospel narratives we learn that Jesus came to John to the river Jordan and was baptized of him. Jesus was then led by the spirit into the wilderness and remained there for 40 days facing temptation of Satan and trial. Following that 40 day time period Jesus now returns he comes back to John, who is still in the Jordan River. And John is still preaching. He is still prophesying. 
He is still baptizing. He is still preparing the way and saying, Messiah is here. Prepare your hearts to receive him. But now, we see our Lord Christ begins his public ministry in earnest and does so by beginning to accumulate his own disciples. Now that word disciple just means a follower. A follower. That's what the word means. And here in this text, we are introduced to the very first disciples, the very first followers of Jesus. Let me tell you what these followers of Jesus would say about themselves. They would say something like, we're really nothing special. We really are not all that impressive. We're just a bunch of nobodies whose life has been transformed by the Messiah King. Yet today, if you're here and you are a Christian, don't you feel about the same way? That I'm really nothing special? I'm not a person of prominence or prestige or renown, but my life was gloriously transformed by the Messiah King. And what we will come to learn in our study of John is that this kind of people, this kind of nobodies or outcasts, if you will, are exactly the kind of people that our Lord is pleased to use to turn the world upside down. Any good news? The God has chosen the foolish things of this world, the base things of this world, the no ones, nobodies of this world, because that includes me. And I think you might confess that includes you as well. God chooses folks just like us to be followers of Jesus. And I believe that God does so so that he receives all the glory for the good work that gets done. Today, let us learn a little bit about these first followers and how their lives were changed by the Messiah. And I pray that today that if you are not following Jesus, that God might indeed use this message to challenge you to realize you don't have to be somebody special to follow Jesus. You just have to be willing to sit at his feet and learn of him. Christ warmly invites all and everyone to follow him and have everlasting life. Now I want to make six divisions within this text today as we think together about these first followers of Jesus. The first thing I want us to notice together is the humility of John. John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. The humility of John. Verse 35, 36, 37. 
Again, the next day, John, this is John the Apostle, writing to us about John the Baptist. The next day, the baptizer stood, and you notice he has with him two of his disciples, disciples of John. And he sees Jesus as he was walking along the shoreline of the Jordan River, and he cries aloud again, Behold, take note, look, there again is the Lamb of God. There he is. And the two disciples, verse 37, they hear John the baptizer say this, and they leave following John and start following Jesus. What I'm interested in this is that you and I give some thought to the humility of John in this. His meekness. Now think, if you will. John the Baptist has had what you might call a successful ministry. Hundreds if not thousands of people have come to hear him preach. Hundreds, if not thousands of people have been baptized by John. John's had a little more successful ministry than I have. <laughs> and he has been at this thing long enough now that he actually has his own disciples, those who are following him. And if you'll think forward just a little bit, not only does John have disciples now, John the Baptist currently has disciples, but think, even after he is arrested and imprisoned, he'll still have people who are following him. Because John in prison will send some of his disciples to Jesus. So he has some very committed followers, John does. However, in his humility, John is not trying to establish his own legacy. The baptizer is not trying to build his own brand. He is not interested in people knowing all about him. Instead, John is interested in pointing people to Jesus, which is exactly what he does here. Behold the Lamb of God. And when two of his own disciples leave him and begin to follow Jesus, he doesn't interfere. He doesn't try to stop them. And he doesn't even, he doesn't even feel slighted by Christ. Instead, there's no doubt John is delighted that they're following after Jesus. I mean, he has told everyone who has ears to hear that Messiah is coming. Prepare your hearts to receive him. And now that Messiah is literally right in front of them, and the baptizer John points to him, he is not shocked nor angry when his disciples leave him and start following the Messiah. John isn't jealous of Jesus. Rather, he knows his place. He knows his role, his, his place and role in history. He is there to prepare the way for the king. 
And he is there to point people to follow the Messiah King. And I think that should serve. John's humility should serve as a lesson to us. None of us, and that applies to those of us in the pulpit in ministry, or those who are ministering to others in other capacities, should not be trying to build their own brand or elevate their own name, but instead their goal should be do, to do what John did, and that is point people to Jesus. Behold the Lamb. Don't follow me. Follow him. And that means that even when people close to us leave us to follow Jesus more closely, perhaps on the mission field, perhaps in foreign, the foreign field or foreign nations, foreign lands, if someone even close to us leaves us to follow Jesus more closely, we should rejoice. Rejoice. What was the center, if I could say it this way, what was the central message of John as he begins to fade? Jesus must increase. I must decrease. And that's exactly how every one of us should feel. Friends, John isn't disappointed in his disciples. Instead, they are doing exactly what he would have them do. And in fact, his disciples are doing exactly what all of us should be doing, following Jesus. Following Jesus. So notice not only the humility of John, but notice now with me, secondly, the identity of these two disciples. The identity of these two disciples. Verse 35, the second half says there are two of his disciples. Verse 37, and the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. But who are they? We're only given a partial answer. Look at verse 40. One of the two which heard John the baptizer speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It is interesting how John the Apostle introduces Andrew. He says, this is Andrew. Now you may not have heard of him, but you've probably heard of his brother, Simon Peter. You've probably heard of him. This is Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. Andrew, this is worth noting, is the first recorded follower that we have of Jesus in the Gospel of John. This is the first one in John's accounting that began to follow after Jesus. I'm not saying he was the absolute first. I'm just saying John tells us that for somebody else, we don't know. This is the first one. He and the other disciple are the first ones who began to follow Jesus. So, one of the two is Andrew. And it's tempting when you're preaching like this that you can stop and dive off and spend a whole sermon saying who is Andrew and following his ministry through the Gospels. But we're not going to do that. We're going to press forward in the narrative. 
So who then is this second disciple of John that begins to follow Jesus? And I will confess and say we don't know definitively. But it is almost certainly John, the author of the book that we're studying. Now, I can't say that for 100%, and so don't run out of here claiming that I did it. Because if the text doesn't say, I can't say for sure. But every commentary I picked up, and everyone who has studied the Gospel of John at length, believes that this second unnamed disciple is John the Beloved, John the Apostle, John the author of this book. You will remember that I told you when we first began this series that John never mentions himself by name in this entire book. He chooses to remain anonymous. And any references that he makes to himself are veiled just like this. He's the beloved apostle. He's the one that laid his head on the chest of Jesus, but never by name. And it sort of stands to reason that had it been one of the others, John would have told us his name. But instead, he chooses to remain anonymous because like John the baptizer, John the apostle doesn't want the spotlight on him at all. So Andrew, and very likely John the apostle, the author of this book, human author of this book, these are the first disciples, first followers of Jesus. But catch this, they were first followers or disciples of John. And now they're becoming followers and disciples of Jesus. So they had heard, as John's disciples, Andrew and John, hope you're keeping that straight, I'm trying to, as the disciples of the baptizer, Andrew and John would have heard John the Baptist preach and prophesy much about the coming Messiah. And now their teacher has pointed at Jesus and said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so these two men rightly stop following John and start following Jesus. And it is noteworthy that Jesus doesn't call them. He will. But they begin to follow Jesus before Jesus calls them. Let me unpack that a little bit. I think it's important. I want to make a, a, a scriptural distinction here on purpose and clear as I can that I think every serious Bible student should learn. And that there will come a day in which Jesus will come to Andrew and John and say, follow me. But that's not this day. There is a point in the future in which Jesus will come to Andrew and Peter and say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's a point in which Jesus will come to James and John and say, come and follow me. But that's not this day. 
That's not what this is. These are men who have heard from John the Baptist, Messiah is coming. Prepare your hearts. Repent. Be ready to receive him. And then their, their leader, John, points at Jesus and says, there he is. So they go and begin to follow. But in all likelihood, now it's even stronger, without any argument, at some point, Andrew and John leave off following Jesus for a little bit and go back to the, their normal life. They still got a family to feed. They still have bills to pay. And so they leave following Jesus, go back to life as they had known it. Let, let's look at the text or add a text that will help unpack this for us. Look Mark chapter number 1. And Mark can say it more clearly than I can. So if you want to look at Mark chapter number 1, I think that will help. And I'm making this, I'm trying to make this clear because if you think Andrew, Peter, John, from this very moment, stop what they're doing and follow Jesus every day for the rest of their lives, you're going to get all messed up in your harmonization or understanding of the other Gospels. But look at Mark chapter 1. Notice verse 14. After John was put in prison. Now where is John in, in our text? Where is John at? He's standing in the river Jordan baptizing. And months later, perhaps, again we don't know, perhaps as much as a year, but at least several months later, John is arrested and put in prison. Jesus comes into Galilee. He begins what is called his Galilean ministry, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. Notice verse 16. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. That is Cephas, or Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, they already know Jesus. They've already been introduced to Jesus. That happens in our text. But they've gone back to life, to the normalcy of their lives. But at this moment, Jesus is going to call them permanently into full-time ministry. Verse 17, And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. John, who we were studying. John, who wrote the gospel that we were studying. Who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway, Jesus, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the ship and with the hired servants and went after him. So I, I know that may seem like something of a... a of a rabbit trail or going to get him sideways, but it's not. If you're going to understand chronology, if you're going to harmonize the calling of the apostles, you've got to make sure you understand the correct order of events. And so what it takes place back in John in our text is really something of an introduction. They begin to follow Jesus, learn who he is, will go back to life, until Christ comes and effectually calls them and says, from now on, you're going to follow me full time. Now, I don't mean to make too big a deal out of this, but in order to harmonize the Gospels, the Gospel accounts, you need to understand the timing of the event. 
And really what we're reading about in John is something preparatory. Preparing their hearts for what Jesus will call them to do in the future. So not only then, secondly, notice, we, we notice the, the identity of the disciples. I really like, thirdly, this question of Jesus. The question of Jesus, verse 38, back in our text, verse 38, 39. Jesus turns. Jesus looks behind him. And there are these two men following him. And he says to them, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? Our King James says, what seek ye? Newer translations, what are you looking for? Or can we say it like this, and I think it really gets to the heart of the question. What are you longing for? What is on your mind that you are now following me? What questions exist in your heart and in your mind? What are you looking for? You've left John, and now you've begun to follow me. What is on your heart? What is it that you're lacking in life that you're looking for? I really think that's the heart of what Jesus is asking. I don't think he's just asking some generic, what are you looking for? What are you seeking after? I think he's pointing to the need that exists in their heart. These men, again, were disciples of John. John had been telling the world, Messiah is coming. The kingdom is at hand. They had been baptized by John in repentant expectation of the coming Messiah. And now John points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And they begin to follow him because their hearts are curious. I think I can say it like this. They realize there's something missing in their life. They need more than what they have. They're not fully contented. They're not fully satisfied. You ever felt that way? That there was something missing? That you're longing for something more than what you've found in this life? If so, can I do what John did and point you to Jesus? Follow him. Jesus asked this question, what are you looking for? Notice verse 38, how they reply to that. Rabbi. I can't get all too sideways with this, but throughout the Gospel of John, in his accurate accounting or recording, he gives us a literal response, a literal rendering of the conversation. And that includes when these two disciples speak back to Jesus, answer to Jesus, they call him rabbi, which is an Aramaic term translated in Greek as master or teacher. He does that again, verse 41. He does it again, verse 42. He tells us what the Aramaic, see, 
I hate to say it like this, but we Americans today, we were so far removed from so much of the world. You know what you call someone that speaks three languages? Trilingual. You know what you call someone that speaks two languages? Bilingual. You know what you call someone that speaks one language? American. But they would have spoken Aramaic, Koine Greek, and probably Hebrew as well. Most all of them. And so John is telling, here's what they responded with in Aramaic, Rabbi. That's literally what they said. But then he translates it so that his Greek readers can understand it in case they don't speak Aramaic. Rabbi, notice, where are you staying? What are y'all looking for? Where are you staying? Now that seems almost like an odd thing to ask, but if you'll dig there just a little bit, a little bit, I think what they're saying is, where are you going so that we can go with you? We want to go, can I use this? We want to hang with you. We want to spend time with you. Where are you dwelling? Where are you staying so we can go with you? I don't think they're so much asking about an address or a geographical location. They want to know, Jesus, where you're going. We want to go with you. Or we want to spend time with you. Rabbi. Teacher. Because we need to be taught. There is a longing, an emptiness that we're seeking to feel. What can you teach us? What can you tell us that will satisfy that within us? believe they felt an emptiness, a yearning, some questions. Don't assume, I can't get too sideways with this, don't assume just because they've been baptized by John, that meant that they'd been born again, that they'd actually come to saving faith. John, just like most preachers, baptized a lot of people that weren't saved. John did. I can tell you one for sure, Judas is carried. So just because they've been baptized does not mean, in fact, John's baptism was a public acknowledgement, I'm a sinner, I'm repenting of my sins, and I, when Messiah comes, I will embrace him. That's what John's baptism was about. Our baptism differs. And our baptism is I'm a sinner, repenting of my sins, and I've trusted in Christ. But not, not just this question that is asked, but notice with me fourthly, what I'm going to call the best day ever. <laughs> the best day ever. Verse 39, he says to them, come and see. You want to know where I'm, where I'm dwelling? Just, just come and follow me. Come and see. Come spend time with me. Notice verse 39. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day. They stayed with him. And don't forget who he is. The word. The light. The son of God. Co-eternal, co-existent, one of a kind, only begotten son. The lamb of God. And these ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill fishermen 
get to spend the day with Jesus. That would be a good day, would it not, my friends? Amen. To get to spend the day with Jesus. They stayed with him. The text is in verse number 39 till about the 10th hour. Now you can either split this and it doesn't matter to me, to me which way you want to split it. Either he is accounting time the way the Romans did. I mean, John, who is recording this, writing this, either he is using the Roman accounting of time. The Romans did what we did. But the truth is, we do what the Romans did. We don't think that way, but we did. On a Roman calendar, a new day began at midnight, same way that we account for time. We, we do it because they did. That's just a fact. And if that's the case, then what John is saying is that when they met Jesus, began to follow him, it was about 10 in the morning, the 10th hour. If it began at midnight, and it was the 10th hour, and they got to spend the day with him from 10 a.m. on. Or, and there, again, there's no way of knowing, and I don't want to confuse you, or John is accounting time the way that the Jews did. In a Jewish culture, Old Testament, and even to this very day, a new day began at 6 p.m. every night. And they would account time from 6 at night to 6 in the morning. At 6 a.m., if they said that something happened at the third hour of the day, that meant three hours from 6 a.m. or 6 a.m. Case in point. We we're told that Jesus was crucified about the third hour. They nailed him to the cross about the third hour in a Jewish reckoning of time that began at 6 a.m. And so the third hour would be 9 a.m. That's when they began the crucifixion of Christ. The gospel writer also says that the sixth hour of darkness fell over, so at noon. And then at the ninth hour, Christ yielded up the goats, so at three in the afternoon. So it is possible that John is using this Jewish accounting of time, and when he says the tenth hour, he's talking about four o'clock in the afternoon. That they began following him first thing in the morning, and they've got to stay with him until four in the afternoon. Now, it doesn't really matter ultimately which it is. The point in this is they get the best day ever. Whether it began at 10 a.m. or began earlier and it ended at 4 p.m., either way, they got to spend the day with Jesus. And here, here is what happened when they spent the day with Jesus. Look at the second half of verse 41. We have found the Messiah, which being interpreted is the Christ, the anointed one. After spending the day with Jesus, Andrew knows beyond any doubt who Jesus is. Any questions, any hesitations, is this the Messiah? They're gone. He knows, he now knows that this man Jesus, 
is God's promised Messiah for Israel. The long-awaited, long-prophesied, long-promised Messiah. Here he is, and I got to spend the day with him. Now, I cannot stress to you, I simply cannot stress to you how important that this is. That the very first followers of Jesus are also the very first ones who recognize him as the Messiah. Don't miss that. The very first followers of Jesus are also the very first ones that publicly acknowledge this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is Israel's Messiah. He is the anointed deliverer, the promised one, and I don't want to get all into this. He is the one who will be the spirit-anointed Messiah who will give the spirit Free his people from the bondage, not of, of Rome, but the bondage of sin. Andrew, and I believe John here, they know beyond any doubt this is Jesus the Messiah. He is the, the Israel's Messiah. In this chapter, we have already taking notice of numerous titles ascribed to Jesus. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. Verse 7. He is the light. Verse 14. He is the only begotten of the Father. Verse 29. He is the Lamb of God. Verse 34, he is the Son of God. Verse 38, he is Master or Rabbi. But now, for the very first time, Jesus is publicly called and identified as the Messiah. These things have I written unto you, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life through His name. Do you get John's purpose statement? There's no question. Here's what he's doing. The very first people that followed Jesus recognized who He was. The, the blindness, the hardness of heart that was and still remains over ethnic Israel is their refusal to recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah. I can go so far as to say one of the main reasons they're in the mess they're in today is because they rejected the Messiah when he came. They killed and crucified their king. And now they are suffering the consequences of it. Jesus has been definitively identified by those who spent time with him as Israel's promised Messiah. Now again, whether that began at 10 a.m. or whether it ended at 4 p.m., whatever, they spent the day with Jesus. What do you think they may have talked about? You reckon Jesus is with Andrew and John, and they're talking about the latest sports event. 
who scored the most runs? Have you seen that new chariot that just got produced? It's 27 horsepower. What a, they ain't talking about their tennis shoes. What do you think they talk? I believe Jesus opened up the scriptures and explained to them, this is who I am. Because that's what Jesus did. Opened up and explained to them, this is who I am. Now they know that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. This is, in fact, this is just exactly the one John said he was. <laughs> he is just exactly who John the Baptist said he was. Israel's coming king. But then, fifthly, the heart of evangelism. The heart of evangelism. Look at the first half of verse 41. Or King James says, He first findeth his own brother Simon, Simon Peter, and says to him, We have found the Messiah, which is the Christ. I love, I just love, the way the NIV translates the opening of verse 41. Listen. The first thing Andrew did was to go tell his brother. After spending the day with Jesus and learning beyond any doubt that he is Israel's Messiah, the first thing Andrew does as he goes and tells somebody else about it. Isn't that the heart of evangelism? Isn't that flowing from a heart of someone that says, this is such good news, I've got to share it with others? The first thing Andrew did was to go to his own brother and say, we have found the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Unfortunately, it seems as though the last thing any of us want to do is tell somebody else about Jesus. That was the first thing he did. But it seems like the last thing we want to do. Because we'll talk about sports and who won and who lost and cars and weather and War. God knows. But will we tell others about Jesus? Dear friends, and I don't mean this to be a thundering criticism, but I think it should be a soul-searching question. Have you told someone else who Jesus is? The first thing Andrew did was go to his brother. Have you got an unsaved brother? Have you got an unsaved sister? Mother? Father? Child? And have you told them who Jesus is? The very heart of evangelism is learning 
the soul-saving, satisfying good news of who Jesus is and yearning to tell others about it. They spent the day with Jesus and couldn't wait to go tell others about it. We come to church, spend time talking about Jesus, and we can't wait to get out and go talk about something else. The heart of evangelism begins with a changed heart that desires to see God change the hearts of others. Look at verse 42. And he, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. He went and got his brother. And he said, I want you to come. Come meet Jesus. He can change you forever. He can save your soul. He is Israel's Messiah. Come and meet the King of Kings. I can't help but be reminded of that wonderful story where there's this man who was a paralytic. But there are four friends who care deeply about it. He can't move. He can't control. He's lying there on a, on a mattress and he can't get anywhere on his own. But he's got four people that care about him. So each of them grab a corner and they take him to the house where Jesus is. But there's so many people in the house, they can't even get in the house. So you know what they do? They go up on the roof tear the roof apart, and then let this man down into the midst of that crowd that Jesus might heal him. They brought their friend to Jesus. And if you're interested, the text actually says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he healed that man. Andrew says, Simon, can I take you to Jesus? Friends, when's the last time you brought someone to Jesus? I'm going to talk to Memorial Heights just a minute here. I say this from the from a pastor's burden. If God doesn't intervene, this church is not going to continue. Look around. The vast majority who ever set foot in a church building do so because you invite it. Is it my responsibility to win souls? Yes. Is it my responsibility to, to invite people? Yes. But it is responsibility of every believer to go and tell others who Jesus is. Now, I wouldn't ask for a show of hands, but if I asked this morning, when was the last time you told someone about Jesus? I wonder if in good conscience you could say it's been a week, it's been a month. I'm afraid some of us might have to confess and say, I have never told someone else the gospel. Shame on us. When we have the remedy for the worst condition on the planet 
and were afraid to share it with others. We have the privilege and the duty as followers of Jesus to tell others about him. Disciples, healthy disciples make disciples. <coughs> The gospel, the good news, is meant to be communicated by everyone who has heard it and been touched by it and believed it. How will others come to a saving knowledge of Jesus unless, like Andrew, we tell them? Romans 10, 13 says, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the very next verse asks this question. How will they call on him of whom they have not heard? And how, they, how will they hear without someone telling them, proclaiming to them the good news? Andrew's life was radically changed by his encounter with Christ. And he had to go tell somebody else about it. Listen, all of us have family members who are not Christian. If we could muster up a wherewithal to argue politics, do we not have enough love for their soul to tell them about Jesus? You say they may get angry. Yeah, they might. They may not talk to me for a while. They might. But better they are angry with you now than they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Sixthly, finally, this first meeting between Jesus and Peter. Verse 42. Andrew brought him, that is Peter, to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, You are going, you are Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah. You're going to be called Cephas, Aramaic, Greek, Peter, which means a rock, a stone. Now, I have to be very careful right here because I could find myself imagining all kinds of things. Say whatever you want to say, but there was a unique relationship that, that existed between Jesus and Peter. Out of all of them, Peter's the only one who got out the boat and walked on water. And what do you think must have been flooding the mind of Jesus when he sees Peter? Peter, can I say, Peter's got no idea what's ahead of him. And it really is a good thing the Lord doesn't tell. Just like it's a good thing he doesn't tell us what's ahead of us. <laughs> and I don't want to overly dramatize this encounter, but just think about how much is going to be exchanged between Peter and Jesus, and this is the first time they meet. Thank goodness Andrew brought it. Simon, you're going to be Peter which means a rock, a stone, or a pebble. It is as though even at this first encounter, Jesus looks at him and says, you have no idea who you are going to become or what you're going to accomplish. You have no idea about the transformation that's going to take, it, take place in your life. You have no idea. And he doesn't. 
Just like God changed Jacob's name to Israel and blessed and mightily used him. And just like the Lord changed Saul of Tarsus, changed his name to Paul, Jesus says to Simon, I'm not only going to change your name, I'm going to change you. Simon, you are going to be used in a way that you could never envision, and you're going to become more than you could possibly imagine. Listen to me. The same could be said for you. You say, wait a minute, you don't know who I am. No, but I know this. You can become more than you could possibly envision, and you can be used in a way that you can't possibly imagine if you will follow Jesus. Even an old stinky, rotten fisherman can be mightily used. Well, these sort of podunk nobodies from the hills of Galilee don't realize it, but they are about to become the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ who would live and die for their king. If you will just stop for a minute and think about this first encounter, this first meeting, <coughs> these men have no idea that within a few years they will be martyred for that man they just met. Every single one of them, except John who writes this. And he'll face his own persecution. They don't know that. They don't need to know that. Jesus doesn't tell them that. Here we are introduced to Andrew. John and Peter, these are the first followers of Jesus the Messiah. From the world's perspective, this is not the most impressive bunch. Think about this. If you're about to start a movement, what you, what you hope will become a worldwide movement, this is probably not the group you'd start with. Uneducated fishermen. Not Roman senators, not Jewish religious leaders, instead fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, people that the world looks down on, Jesus will use to turn the world upside down. And he can use us that same way. Even a little ragtag bunch of toe-dunk nobodies, he can use us to turn this world upside down. God uses very ordinary people to build his kingdom and share his glory. Just people just like you and I. Today, are you a follower of Jesus? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? I want to point you to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to point you to the rabbi who can answer all the spiritual questions that you have. I want to point you to the Messiah who is the anointed one, who will give you the gift of his spirit and change your life forever. May God help us to be followers, not the first, but faithful followers of our Lord Jesus.